Well, good evening and welcome to uh, Gospel Issues Seminar uh, this September. Um, it's great to see you. If you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube, say hi, um, do ask questions and make comments. Um, we're really pleased tonight to have a, a special guest speaker, uh, Dr. Peter Jones, um, all the way over from California. Um, Peter Jones is uh, a well-established author, um, intellectual teacher, uh, director of a ministry called Truth Exchange, and associate pastor of a church in California. Um, he's going to talk to us about how worldview affects our uh, sexual um, lifestyles, sexual behaviour. Um, Peter, can we welcome Peter onto the um, onto the chat? Uh, great, Peter. Oh, it's hey, good to be. Good to be with you. You know, I'm thrilled to be with you because while I'm in America, I'm an English citizen. I've lived all over the world, as this picture behind me shows. That's right. the Saint Victoire in Aix-en-Provence, where I lived for 18 years, and now I live in the States. But I'm thrilled to be part of this ministry of Christian concern and the wonderful work of Andrea that I've had something to do with in the past. So thank you so much for your invitation. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you, Peter. I know you've also taught on our Wilberforce Academy a few times, haven't you, as well? And the students have That's right. really loved your content and really benefited from your excellent analysis of our culture um, and where our culture is going. And um, I know you've got a new book out, haven't you, coming out uh, called That's Who's right. Rainbow? Um, here's a picture of it there. Who's Rainbow? Coming out um, very soon from uh, Peter Jones, um, forward by Rosaria Butterfield. Um, and it's about, again, God's gift of sexuality, a divine calling, um, all about the kind of stuff he's going to be talking about tonight. So uh, we'll look forward to that. But Peter's also published um, various other books as well. Um, I think one of them is called One and Two, isn't it? That's um, right. I like to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very good, actually, about sort of um, worldviews and oneism and so on. Um, so, uh, look, Peter, you're going to speak now for 30 or 40 minutes or so. Um, on the topic that we've got here. Um, look, really look forward to what you've got to say. Um, as he speaks, folks, while you're watching on, on YouTube or Facebook, uh, do uh, put down your comments, your questions. And once Peter's finished, I'll be joined by Andrea Williams, and we will do a live Q&A session with Peter and Andrea um, after that. So, Peter, over to you, and thank you very much, and we really look forward to what you've got to say. Thank, thank you. you so much. In the 5th century, Augustine, like Luther in the 16th century, began to read Paul's epistles. And Augustine said about this that it put him in an agitated state and convinced him to convert, which is, of course, what happened to the Apostle Paul. What the Apostle Paul said to those men in the same chapter gave teaching on sexuality, and I believe that should put us in an agitated state for serious thought as to how sexuality applies to each individual, uh, to their physical and spiritual identity. So that's the subject, and it's based upon the teaching of the scriptures. But I must say this as I start, we must find a discourse that avoids emotionalism, moralism, hatred, and bigotry, because no one can speak from a position of moral superiority. There can be no contempt for gay Christians. There must only be the expression of clarity and of God's forgiving love. 
And a loving thing to do, I believe, is to place this issue of sexuality in the largest possible worldview context that you can find. And I suppose I must say to Gen Z, or Z as they say over here, that there are serious true distinctions that structure the biblical worldview, either or choices that can sometimes offend people, whereas in our day and age, offense it seems to be the greatest sin. But in the scriptures, we have to look at two kinds of radically opposed ways of thinking. The Apostle Paul speaks about the undiscerning or debased mind that elevates the creator and makes him worship himself and the creation, or a transformed or discerning mind that builds a worldview on the truth of God, the creator. The discerning mind of Romans 12.2 and the undiscerning mind of Romans 1.28 are expressed in Greek words that share the same root. So we're dealing with the same issue of a clear antithesis between two ways of using the mind to process ideas. And of course, in our own time, more and more we see that logic and debate are being denied. And when, as I said, offending people or being offended is held up as the greatest thing we must avoid. In some, in some contexts, we can no longer make distinctions of the most essential nature, even between male and female, or we lose our job. And this be, behind this kind of approach is critical theory that adds the emotive element that Christian sexual teaching oppresses LGBT people and uh, creates a sense of uh, oppression around them. And so the greatest sin is participating in oppression. But of course, we must realize that the largest context for understanding what truth is, we can find it amazingly in the Bible and also in the way we study history. And in my lecture, I will go back 4,000 years to make the points I will make. And so this is not just a novel issue that we discovered a couple of decades ago. This is a fundamental way of thinking. In the real created world, we are faced with a moral choice we cannot avoid. Are we for or against a personal God? I was reading about Karl Marx this morning and how his, his goal was to essentially reject a personal creator. But if there is a, a creator, then there is creation. And distinction is the fundamental notion behind all things. We either worship Gaia, the great mother, or Yahweh, the creator. In scripture, there are only two objects of worship, and one is false. We either worship and serve creation, or we worship and serve the creator, says the Apostle Paul. In only 25 words, in Romans 1.25, that is an incredible statement of the two 
only possible options for human beings. We either worship creation, which I've called oneism, and if you do that, you believe that matter is self-created, self-explanatory, and ultimately worthy of worship. But of course, that also means if the only thing ultimately is matter or mixed with spirit, and that's divine, that means there are no fundamentally ultimate distinctions. And this gives rise to what could be called a homo cosmology or a non-binary worldview. How many of you are hearing that term expressed these days of non-binary thinking? And the Apostle Paul calls this the way of denying God, and I like to give the simple expression oneism, that all then is one, there is no ultimate distinction. But the Apostle Paul immediately goes on to connect this way of thinking to sexuality. In Romans 1.26, following 1.25, which I've just cited, he says, for this reason, and he goes on to describe sexuality. So in oneism, there is a certain kind of sexuality. And now the other way of looking at the world, the only other way, is to worship the Creator. And if you worship the Creator, you believe that there is a Creator who is external, intelligent, personal, separate from us and the creation He made. So there are two kinds of existence, not one, but two, the creation and the Creator. And God the Creator, who is distinct from us, has placed distinctions in the creation He made, giving rise to what you might describe as a heterocosmology, a cosmology of otherness, a binary worldview based on distinction. I call that twoism. So you see already, as I'm trying to establish the basic structures of the way we build our worldview, that in the Bible, there must be a notion of distinction and separation of the binary. And you see this stated very clearly. I said in Romans 125, you see it as expressed as either the truth or the lie. Now, both those terms have the definite, uh, definite article in front of them, and so they must be translated the truth and the lie. And that means that there are these two distinctions that we cannot avoid. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul goes through a whole list of these distinctions. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So you've got two possibilities here, and you must distinguish between them. What fellowship has light with darkness? And then he goes on, what accord has Christ with Belial? That's Christ the Lord, or Belial the Prince of Lawlessness. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So here you have the Apostle Paul giving us the very basis of how to put our world together by making essential distinctions. Now, my lecture has basically two points to it. The worldview of modern paganism and the place of homosexuality in it, 
and then the worldview of the Bible and the place of heterosexuality. So I hope that's clear. And uh, as I describe today's world, it is interesting to see how our world has really come into a full acceptance of this oneist view of things. It was, uh, at the time of the 60s, what we called a sexual revolution. But it wasn't only a sexual revolution. Woodstock, some of you remember that name, was a spiritual revolution. And so we saw coming together in the 60s two notions, the notion of a sexual freedom with no distinctions, and a spirituality with spiritual freedom and no distinctions. And of course, essential to that way of thinking was something that the West had not known for many years, and that is Eastern thinking. Uh, two major books came out in the last decade. Uh, the sociological studies, one by Colin Campbell entitled The Easternization of the West. And he says, Easternization currently occurring in the West is quite unlike anything previously experienced. So as you're thinking about your world and how we think, remember that Easternization is a very recent uh, element that's been brought into the West. And then another book by a Jewish author who became a Buddhist, I believe, or a Hindu, entitled American Veda. Now, of course, that's a focus on America, but I think it's true of the West in general. American Veda. And Goldberg is trying to propose to us that the very essence of Hinduism is the way we all now should think. And he argues that we are becoming Hindus. And the fundamental notion of Hinduism, says Goldberg, in his book, American Veda, is the notion of Advaita. Now, for no extra money, I will give you the translation of this term. Advaita means not to. Interesting, right? The Apostle Paul is talking in Romans 2,000 years ago about oneism and what I call twoism, God distinct from us, and here in Hinduism, we have the fundamental notion of Advaita, not two. And following that sort of spiritual, ideological expression of things, you have, uh, you have sexuality following on. And you have the destruction, for those who buy into this Hindu way of thinking, the destruction of the gender binary. Dartmouth, which used to be a missionary college, one of the classy universities in the United States, and its website says Dartmouth, it's talking about the housing, Dartmouth seeks to provide a living environment welcoming to all gender identities, one not limited by the traditional gender binary. Isn't that interesting that our centers of culture are now rejecting the gender binary? You wonder how people can do that if, uh, especially in transgender, we see the com 
complete confusion of gender altogether, in spite of the fact that the XY sex determination system is what determines who we are as sexual beings. But because Hinduism of the Advaita kind is making the rules, we have to reject all that science and believe that there are no special kinds of sexualities, no binary gender distinctions. And so our hom homosexuality uh, fits into this new way of thinking. And I'd like to give uh, two examples of how this is happening. You see, I'm sliding into now having established a worldview of oneism or Hinduism or Eastern thinking. I'm sliding now into the whole issue of sexuality and how that has become so important as an expression of this kind of spirituality. And the first example I want to give is from the American professor at Emory University, J. Michael Clark, who is a gay thinker and practitioner. And I found what he says is very interesting. This is not just civil rights. It's not just what he wants to do because he feels like it. He says this, being a gay man or lesbian entails far more than sexual behavior alone. It entails a whole mode of being in the world. Interesting. You see, he's not claiming uh, sort of just freedom to do what he wants, but he wants to make the point that this is the worldview. It determines how we think about everything. And because that's the case, he cannot find an example. He was a Christian. He cannot find an example of that kind of sexuality in the Bible. And he turns to the Indian homosexual shaman of pagan animism called the Badach. And that's the model he proposes for himself. The other example which comes from uh, the 18th century is from the infamous Marquis de Sade, who stated that homosexuality is perhaps, it, it is perhaps there in homosexuality that nature is the most devoutly worshipped. He was understanding that there was something worshipful, something spiritual about homosexuality, and he emphasized it. So the deeply spiritual power associated with sexuality must not be missed. And so we may not simply see sexuality as a question of civil rights. And the rise of homosexuality in our time must be seen in terms of a change in spirituality. The pagan nature of our times, and I use the term pagan as the worship of nature, which is what it means, that is oneism, of course. The pagan nature of our times can be shown in the States 
by the example of the spiritual advisor of Hillary Clinton, who in the mid-90s, uh, her name is Jean Houston, was advising the top echelon of political power at that time. And she says, and she's a brilliant woman, we are living in a state of both breakdown and breakthrough, a whole system transition requiring a new alignment that only myth can bring. Never has mythic knowing been more needed than today. And she proposes the reading of her book, The Passion of Isis and Osiris, to discover the spiritual power of the goddess Isis, the goddess of the underworld. She wants us to communicate with those mythic beings remembered as Isis and Osiris. And of course, homosexuality, as you will see, fits perfectly into this mythological way of thinking. Uh, John Oswald, distinguished professor of Old Testament at Asbury, Asbury Theological Seminary, describing the uh, world of paganism, says in a section entitled Denial of the Boundaries, that is, Denial of Distinctions, all boundary-crossing immoral behavior, such as cult, prostitution, incest, homosexuality of the ancient world, are not simply primitive behaviors or unfortunate aberrations, they are theological statements, necessary expressions of the worldview of which they were part. So here's a serious Old Testament scholar saying that this kind of expression of sexuality fits with pagan spirituality. So the pagan understanding of God as a spiritual life force within nature produces a deconstruction of normative creational sexuality, which is what I would like to show later. But many evangelicals are not seeing this. They do not see the relationship between a certain kind of spirituality, though some are actually accepting forms of the spirituality, and the practice of sexuality. I'll give you an example of an evangelical by the name of Ken Wilson, who in his book, A Letter to My Congregation, which uh, affected many, many pastors. And uh, he says in this book in 2014, we are all male and female, part of the bride of Christ. And maybe, listen to this, maybe we are being asked by the spirit to relax around gender distinctions a little. Well, unfortunately, this man also relaxed around theological distinctions. And uh, four years later, he wrote a book, Solus Jesus, A Theology of Resistance, where he proposes relaxing the Christian doctrines that come from the, Re the Reformation, the solas of the Reformation. Uh, so that's an example of how you can slide as an evangelical in terms of uh, pretty radical thinking, you have Richard Rohr, a Roman Catholic theologian, who proposes non-Buddhist-inspired spirituality as the very essence of Christianity. But this is interesting what he says. Gay people get 
non-duality because it is in their DNA. In other words, he sees a connection between that particular sexuality and the oneest non-dual spirituality that he's proposing to many believers. So I think it's important for us to realize that spirituality and sexuality are deeply related. I think Michael Clark, who I mentioned earlier, gives a very clear statement of this. He became a rejecter of the scriptures because he understood that being a gay man or lesbian entails, as I read earlier, entails far more than sexual behavior alone. It entails a whole mode of being in the world. He well understood that the opposition to homosexuality was not closed-minded Bible-believing Christians who couldn't open their minds to this other possibility, but that this possibility does not belong in the Bible at all. That's opposed to Julie Rogers, an ex-lesbian celibate chaplain at Wheaton College, who was invited to come and help homosexual Christians who were attending Wheaton College. And uh, she was celibate, and she, but she said she was a lesbian. And she proposed asking evangelicals to call it quits on all the fighting and to focus on all we share in common. Interesting, though, Rogers left Wheaton and soon had entered into a full relationship with another woman. Unfortunately, as Clark indicates, it's a decision of immense worldview importance. It's not a question of mere infighting. Clark is saying that the problem lies not with being mean-spirited or hateful Christians, but the impossibility of seeing how homosexuality fits with the Bible's worldview. And so, as I said earlier, he turned to the American Indian Vedach, the androgynous shaman of animistic paganism. For Clark, the Vedach, born as a male, but as an adult choosing to live as a female, constitutes a desirable gay spiritual modern because the Badachi said achieves the reunion of the cosmic sexual and moral polarities or the joining of the opposites. You see, oneism wants to get rid of opposites, distinctions. And so the great goal of paganism is the joining of the opposites. Well, what does homosexuality do but it refuses opposites and celebrates the union of the same. And so we see the Badach as expressing that rejection of the polarities and of bringing the world together in a false kind of way. So this way of thinking that uh, this contemporary gay intellectual understands doesn't fit with the Bible, can be shown as you look throughout religious history. Homosexuality is a common trope in the history of paganism throughout time and space. And uh, 
I can go to the 19th century BC Mesopotamia to show that there were androgynous priests associated with the worship of the goddess Ishtar from the Sumerian age. Their condition was due to, quote, their devotion to Ishtar, who herself had transformed their masculinity into femininity. They functioned as occult shamans. They seemed to have engendered demonic abhorrence in others, a fearful respect they provoked, which is to be sought in their otherness. So that's one example of how far we can go back to show how homosexuality in various forms is an expression of pagan spirituality. The renowned history of religion scholar Mercea Eliad called this ritualized androgyny. Now he has a whole book of study on this showing that many myths, symbols, and defined figures really can be seen as very similar throughout the world. Being an expert in the history of religions, he's actually saying that paganism has an essential form. It's the same throughout. And he says that the myth of a bisexual or androgynous god or androgynous or homosexual priest in the ancient world is the often the expression of the spirituality of paganism. And you see it in Indo-European nature religions, in the myths of Australian Aborigines, in African tribes, South American Indians and Pacific Islanders. Even though separated by many centuries, Eliades shows that an evident historical and theological connection between the Mesopotamian homosexual shamans and all the others cannot be denied. And so you have in these many areas various homosexual priests. The Syrians called them galley. That's what uh, Augustine saw them as. In the North American tribes, they were called Bedach. You have a whole series of American tribes who have various names for this. And uh, their goal was to cause man to think of the opposites as merely complementary aspects of a single reality, hence the importance of the religious symbolism that androgyny expresses. You see, in, in homosexuality, it's really a form of androgyny, that is the mixing of male and female into one person. And in the couple, you have both male and female playing the roles of both male and female. That's why the Old Testament warns against homosexuality. It's immorally presented as something God does not like, but it's also a warning that Israel not fall into the spiritual practices of the pagan nations around them. And the meaning, as Eliade says, of this kind of sexuality is the following. The oneness quest is this, in mystical love and at death, one completely integrates the spirit world. All contraries are collapsed. The two merge into an androgynous whole. Eliade calls this an archaic and universal formula for the expression of wholeness 
the coexistence of the contraries or the coincidencia oppositorum, the joining of the opposites. And that in the homosexual priest shaman who combine their own person, in their own person, the feminine element of the earth and the masculine element of the sky, we see here ritual androgyny as a well-known archaic formula for bringing the opposites together. Other studies have shown this, and I won't go into detail here. Walter Williams, a study of spirit and flesh, sexual diversity in American Indian culture, notes that the Christian Spanish conquistadores found South America just full of these homosexual earth-worshipping Mayans and Aztecs. And so they were uh, shocked by that, and they tried to eliminate it. Homosexuality, as I said, therefore, has a spiritual meaning, and the meaning really is its androgynous sense. As I said, both members of a homosexual relationship play the male and female roles. So, so is transgender, where both genders define one person's sense of gender. I guess that can never be erased from somebody who claims to be one gender but still is the other. And this has moral implications because there is an attempt to assume guiltless responsibility for all our actions, whether good or evil. And so the joining of the opposites really is also an attempt to normalize evil. The creator-creature distinction eradicates uh, that possibility because androgyny eradicates distinction and elevates spiritual blending of all things. The theological implications of this, of, of this are enormous. Such naivety plays into the hands of non-binary or non-dual spirituality, now popular, and of contemplative spirituality in its Hindu forms. So I must move on quickly. It is therefore being argued that homosexuality really is the sacrament of oneist paganism. June Singer, a brilliant, well, she was a Jungian psychologist, but she wrote a book in 1977 entitled Androgyny Towards a New Sexuality. Did you notice the title, Androgyny? This was before people were talking about transgender. And androgyny was not that well understood. But she is proposing that a new sexuality will combine with the new spirituality of the 60s, the age of Aquarius, to bring about a full orbed worldview. And here's what she says. What lies in store as we move towards the long for conjunction of the opposites, can the human psyche realize its own creative potential through building its own cosmology and supplying it 
with its own gods. Somehow, you see, we have gotten to the point since she wrote of a full orb worldview that binds now spirituality and sexuality together. And it can be expressed sometimes in what's called a cosmology of synthesis. Synthesis wants to bring everything together. And uh, in an earlier book of mine, The Other Worldview, I talked about the arrival, not of the post-Christian, nor the post-modern, but the post-secular. In other words, that the secular worldview is being replaced by an intellectual approach to things that includes the spiritual. It's especially expressed in the pagan philosopher Richard Tarnas, and uh, I would recommend that you read anything that he writes. But he says this, the new spirituality includes Platonic and pre-Socratic philosophy, hermeticism, a form of Gnosticism, mythology, the mystery of religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Gnosticism, and the major esoteric religions of Native American spiritual traditions. Don't you see that we are living in a time that is normalizing all these pagan ways of thinking uh, to bring about what's called a new synthesis uh, where the intellectual who used to call himself secular now will be happy to call himself post-secular as he joins spirituality and sexuality together. All right, I've come to my second point. How much time do I have? Probably not enough time, but uh, the second point is heterosexuality in the cosmology of biblical revelation. If same-sex marriage is a sort of sacrament of oneism, it's not surprising to find in scripture that heterosexuality and marriage is presented as the ultimate mystery of twoism. Now, we in Protestantism, we don't call that a sacrament, but it stands as a symbol of everything that the gospel represents. And so we must ask ourselves, how is heterosexuality informing biblical sexuality or biblical spirituality in a way that makes God uh, essential to us our, uh, following him. And when, you, when Jesus was asked by the religious leaders of his day, what first commandment, what is the first commandment? Jesus responded without hesitation with a statement in Mark 12, 28 to 31. I think we have that. We can put it up uh, for you all to see. And I'd like to propose that we do that. Here it is. Here it's coming. Mark 12, 28 to 31. This is Jesus being asked what is essential. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus takes us to the essence of Old Testament thinking, 
what's known as the Shema. This was the daily prayer of Israel. Hear Israel. And Jesus makes this the essence of the New Testament faith. And uh, Jesus puts the love of God ahead of everything else, including our sense of natural or intuitive love for the neighbor. Now, sometimes people like to say, as Brian McLaren does, that we mustn't begin with the love of God. We must begin with the love of the neighbor, because only through loving the neighbor do we prepare our hearts to love God. But, of course, McLaren ended up really denying the God of Scripture. Jesus knew this, and when he was faced with Satan's temptation, he said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve the worship and serving of Romans 125. So Christians must ask what it means to love God first. And I'd like to just go through a few of these elements in the Scriptures that indicate why we must love God first to have some understanding of what it means then to love the neighbor as ourselves. We must love God first in the first place because God precedes us as the loving creator. Long before there was any neighbor to love, God was expressing perfect love because God is love in the Trinity. Before the cross and the coming of Jesus, before God's dealing with the people of Israel, God revealed himself as a personal creator. God did not need to create. He created us to share his love with us. So there are only two kinds of reality, as I indicated earlier, the creator and the creation. And we love God first because he is the creator. This, of course, is not only said in Romans 1.25, it's also said in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But to begin with, there was only God, then creation comes after. So we love God because he is first. We also love God because he is holy. The holiness of God means the otherness of God. That's what holy actually means. When I pray most days, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, I'm actually saying you are other than I and everybody else. And holiness means other. But as the other, he nevertheless shares his reality with us. And uh, the otherness of God is absolutely essential for building a worldview because only by affirming otherness can we make intelligent statements about anything. The fact of intelligence indicates that there is a personal mind behind the universe, as we realize when we try to understand the DNA system. It is so vast, we cannot understand it, but we know it's intelligent, and behind that, there is an intelligent being. And you know who that being is? His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh means, I am who I am. God is the only one who self-defines. We are mere pimples 
in an incalculable universe and to claim the right and the power to self-define is madness. But since the 60s, we are told that that's what we should do. Biologically, there are no such things as men and women, as Judith Butler stated in her book, Gender Trouble. She believes that gender is a performative theory, or as the older feminist Simone de Beauvoir used to say, on ne n'est pas femme, on le devient. One is not born a woman, one becomes one. So you have to decide to become one. Over against the God who is the only self-defining being, we claim that divine power. And that's why we love him, because he's the only one who can define himself, and he defines us. And this is my third point. We love God first because his prior being determines who we are. His, his is the being which defines other existences. God did not become a loving God because he created us. He was already loving, but his act in creating the world was an expression of love. We keep talking about first. This is because first, the first thing you can say about human beings is that our very beginning only existed after God. Some essential, something essential is lacking. The image God gives us makes us holy because it reflects the image of God himself. Four, we love God first by respecting the holy character of the creation he made. Paul describes homosexuality as against nature, parafusin in Greek, because nature has a specific form. And when you read the Old Testament, in particular chapter 1 of Genesis, you realize that God is actually giving form to nature. He separates day and night. He creates different kinds and gives them specific individual names and calls everything very good. So to, 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 the, to create is to separate and to make holy. Thus created things reflect in some creaturely way the holiness and separateness of God. You can say that the principle of difference or the binary is the key to the cosmos. Five, we love God first by preserving the distinction reflecting image that he gave us. I said that we are uh, created by God and that he exists before us, but there is a specific way in which he creates us. As the scripture says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, and then we go on to read, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this time of raging conflict about gender, twoism brings incredible clarity. The image of God, male and female, and the principle of otherness is our true identity. Thus, being the being of God has implications for human identity. 
just as the persons of the Trinity must be kept separate in identity and function, so must women, men and women keep their sexual identity separate as well because male and female expresses in some deep way the Trinitarian being of God who is both different and unified. Six, we love God first by honoring heterosexual marriage. Heterosexual marriage, as I just suggested, is a reflection of God as Trinity. And you might think that I'm just suggesting this on my own, but as a matter of fact, Genesis 2.24 is used by the Apostle Paul to make this point. Genesis 2.24 is the famous institution of marriage. And uh, in Corinthians 11.3, he states this, that just as a husband is the loving head of his wife in a God-honoring marriage, so the dynamism of the distinct personal relations of the Trinity, uh, where Christ is, where the head of Christ is God, is a reflection of who God is. So the comparison is explicit. The marital relationship is a reflection of how the Trinity works, and marriage is the revelation of God's inner Trinitarian being. But from that text, Genesis 2.24, which, which expresses the being of God, Paul also develops God as our Redeemer. When Jesus cites Genesis 2.24, which you all remember, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Jesus says that this is what it should be as normative truth. Paul cites this twice. And Paul says that in this text, this Old Testament text, and I'm talking about Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, there is a mystery expressed about God. Paul says that his call as apostle is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So Paul, as an apostle, is called to develop what is mysteriously revealed in the Old Testament in God the Creator. And the great mystery of the cosmos is that God revealed marriage as a revelation of himself in, his, in the person of Christ who comes to love his bride, the church. In other words, this is an expression of God as the Redeemer who comes and loves those who are not himself, they're distinct from him, they're actually fallen, but God loves them just the way in marriage the man loves his wife. So those two elements in uh, the flow out of Genesis 2.24 reflect God both as Trinity and Redeemer, and they're both represented by heterosexual marriage. This is how it can be said of God in the Old Testament. Just as a husband loves his wife and as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, 
so shall your God rejoice in you. That's Isaiah 6.24. I was interested to read about Doug Manwaring, a well-known U.S. journalist who once promoted same-sex marriage, who became a Christian. And uh, he changed his mind entirely. He said, I am now a Christian, and because though I am same-sex attracted, he still admitted to that, or more likely because I am same-sex attracted, I marvel at the extraordinary significance of marriage in God's eternal plan. Marriage is under siege because it stands at the heart of the gospel good news. At its heart, this is a spiritual battle. So we are faced with this reality of Scripture. It's true that love is not limited to marriage, but the intimacy of heterosexual marriage is the love used in Scripture to show us the distinction and union aspects of the divine Trinitarian love. This one flesh union is set apart in Scripture to reveal who God is. And I end with this, that this kind of biblical teaching is not meant as raw moralism. It is for human flourishing. The heterosexual mandate is not hate-filled bigotry. It is for the goodness of human life. It's a vital cosmological concept for human flourishing, without which there is no human civilization. There are no babies, of course, no love, no gospel. And this is how we must love our neighbor. The faithful celibate male Jesus comes to reveal the ultimate redemptive meaning of marriage as it will be fulfilled in the final days when the heavenly groom will come with his bride, the church, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so let me just uh, encourage us to want to speak the truth of heterosexuality as an expression of the gospel that God wants us to bring to the world around us. May the Lord grant his church courage and loving gospel clarity as she engages in faithful, courageous teaching and living. I began with a reference to Luther. With that, I'll end. Luther, a wonderful believer, said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much, Peter. That was very insightful and interesting and uh, engaging material there you had. And um, uh, Andrea Williams is, I think, behind the scenes, uh, who may want to join us as well. Andrea, hi. Nice to see I'm you. Sure, I'm sure she has all kinds of deep theological questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to try and, well, try and sit down for this session. I'll tell you what, I've got one. I'm going to start off with one, Peter, for you, which is actually... Um, topical for me because just today my son was taught in 
RE in a church in school that Hinduism is the world's oldest religion. <laughs> and I wondered, uh, you know, he asked me, is that true? And I thought, I'm going to ask Peter this question. <laughs> is, is that, would you, what would you, what do you think I should say to my son about, about that? Well, you know, the scriptures certainly would be a proof that if we believe that God is the creator and that he created all things and he created human beings, he certainly didn't create the first human beings to be Hindus. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, there was a fundamental distinction, as I said, in the beginning, God yeah. created the heavens and the earth. Whereas yeah. Hinduism sees no distinction between the human and the divine. So yeah. that that is a heresy that develops much later on, as a matter of fact. And uh, how much later, I'm not sure. The Tower of Babel seems to be getting close to Hinduism, where it wants to join everyone together and get right. rid of the distinctions. So it is a heresy, and it's a very old heresy, of course. And, and that's why perhaps the Apostle Paul as I suggested in Romans 125, sees these two possibilities as the only two possibilities. I remember C.S. Lewis stated that Christianity and Hinduism were the pure examples of totally different religions. And so Romans 125 helps understand that either the worship of creation or the worship of the creator. So right. I, I think uh, Lewis was correct in seeing in Hinduism this fundamental heresy that has been going for m many thousands of years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's helpful. In fact, my son did say, apparently he was taught the definition of religion is three people, and he said Adam and Eve plus Abel would have been a religion. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. Um, so, and, and the other question I've got for you, Peter, is this. So, you know, we've been, you know, in a mode of thinking that secularism is the main sort of um, rival worldview, if you like. And right. you're saying it's much more Easternism or paganism or Hinduism. And, and how does that change our stance or our ministry or our apologetic, you know, in terms of um, as Christians, how, you know, how, how should we counter, best counter this? I think we're very well versed in proofs of God and that kind of thing. But that's it's different for Easternism and paganism. What do we what do we how do we best reach those people? Yes, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In, perhaps Tim to that. I think that a lot of people um, in the West have we've we've got this idol of self, this idol of body, whether it's kind of the gym buff body or the idol of sex, and meshed into that, not a purist. Eastern worldview. That's not what that's not what people think they're doing. And yet it's lived out in the kind of I I'm picturing you there in Escondido, Peter, but in sort of the California um beach type life is very Eastern infused, um, sort of mystically infused, but uh, but it, but also here, you know, we're in I'm I'm here in central London at the moment, you see a lot of that influence. No one's necessarily naming it, however. Obviously, there's yoga is huge across the world. That sort of transcendental meditation is huge across the world. But there's this kind of strange fusion with no one really naming, That's right. naming it. Uh, what you've done so usefully um, in this lecture that we've had this evening is um, 
help us to understand through a theological lens, through a biblical lens, what it is that's going on. Mm -hmm. How do we take that now into our daily reality with what we, what we, the kind of basic confusion? Yeah, well, speaking of secularism, in the past, secularists rejected all kinds of expressions of spirituality as just below them. You know, this yeah. was foolishness. And uh, we were not interested in that kind of thing. But now the intellectuals are accepting this kind of mythical approach to life. They've had enough with the deadly sexual uh, secularist approach where there is no spirituality and so they're looking for spirituality yeah obviously in all the wrong places but and they won't look at it unless we oblige them to they won't look at it in terms of christianity but they will look at it as that list of of religions i read out to you in the new synthesis including all these ancient religions, they're now ready to look at them as speaking truth. So that's a distinction between the old secularism and modern people, that they've gotten over their rejection of religion as such, but they yeah. will believe any kind of religion except the true one. Yeah, yeah. And that's the I, one, it's a kind of oneism. It's, 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 absolutely. It's all oneism. And, and um, we've got a question here. By the way, do sort of put your questions on the chat on Facebook or YouTube. We've got a question from Dave Bennett on Facebook. He says this, um, where does Islam fit in? Ah. Um, how would you see that fitting in? Would, it, would you see it as one? It's because they believe in a, in a Taweed, a sort of fundamental unity, a monotheistic you know, monads, monadic God almost. Well, you probably heard Joe Boot speak about this already. Yeah. Uh, in your place and he and I have thought about it a lot but and I jumped over a paragraph in my lecture because I was running out of time but now I have the question I'm going to have to deal with it but it seems to me and this may take some thinking and you uh, Tim are more of an expert in Islam than I am I think Maybe. but it seems that God is a singularity that is, God who is non-Trinitarian yeah. cannot, cannot be a personal God. Correct. Because individuality all alone in a cave is not the example of personhood. And we would never dream of that. So yeah. if, if uh, Hindu is, if, sorry, if Islam cannot accept Trinity, but now as human beings, they want personhood right? All human beings want God to be personal. Then apparently there are texts in the Quran that suggest that God created human beings in order to have personal relationships with them. Right. I forget the texts themselves. Maybe you know them, Tim. But be that as it may, if God is creating human beings to have personal relationships with him, then he is lost all notion of transcendence. He is depending on creatures to be the kind of God that he is. Whereas in the Trinity, God is totally independent, totally transcendent from all the creation because of the unity and the love 
within the Trinity, and he does not need the creation to make him personal in the personal sense of unity of personal beings. So in in an ultimate sense, I would say that uh, Islam is oneist. It doesn't realize it, but it is. Because Sufism jumps all that and creates a oneist system where God is in everything. And it doesn't need some of those uh, Quranic texts to prove that God created the world to be human. Anyway, that's my simple... On that, to, um, maybe with a question to almost flesh it out a bit to clarify. Obviously, God is relational as the Father God. That's right. In, uh, um, so, uh, in terms of the, Christ- the, the Christian world worldview, so can you just unpack that in terms of what you were just saying? Yeah. Well, I, I guess yours is the right word. God is re- relational. That is to say, we have a doctrine of God as Trinity which makes him relational without any dependence on the creation. Once you start depending on the creation, you've lost any sense of transcendence. That is, God is totally other than we are. That's transcendence. We need a God like that. And that's what the doctrine of uh, doctrine of Trinity gives to us. Yeah, yeah. I read a very good article in, um, in Jets, you know, Jets, um, yep. the evangelical theological society that said we shouldn't ask do Christians and Muslims worship the same God because you've already confused the question. The question should be <laughs> do Christians and Muslims worship the same triune God? That's right. And then That's the answer right. becomes more obvious. They don't. Yes, right. They don't. You know what I mean, and, and um, I thought that was a very helpful way of putting it there. Um, yeah. So look, we've also got a question here from somebody calling themselves um, psychotherapist Clark on YouTube. Can someone be both LGBT? whatever and Christian Um, what would you say to them Peter I took the time to listen to that wonderful program you folks did last week I guess it was uh, on Friday yeah perhaps someone could put the live stream link on that it was a great testimony wasn't it yeah James Parker such a delicate careful thinker and yet at the same time he would answer that question he could say, well, you can appear like you're a Christian and you can think you're a Christian, but ultimately you will discover that your Christianity is not worthy of scriptures. And yeah. I would have loved to have heard him answer that question, but from my theological analysis of the scriptures, I would have to say no. That you right. cannot practice gay sexuality and ultimately be a true Christian. What about now? You, um, you may be you may be on the way to becoming a Christian. I would yeah. hope that that might be the case. What but about if you, celibate? If you, you mentioned this Wheaton lecture, didn't you? What about somebody who says, "Well, I'm lesbian but celibate"? You know, what what would you say to that? Yeah, um, in our denomination, we are having a uh, a long discussion on that. Can can you use the word "gay, gay Christian," putting "gay" with "Christian," if the Christian says he's gay, but he's celibate. And the argument that I've been noticing is that that gay thinking is actually not a good thing. It is, a, it is an expression of the fall. And there are gay people who seek to be Christian by being celibate, 
but justify gay thinking. And it's I'm reading means that you're thinking in that way or that something where whereas in fact when we really love the lord jesus christ he is all sufficient this idea right. of our sexuality or defining ourselves in set in a in a sexual framework which is what that is right. is defining ourselves in terms of one part of what it, of, of 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 humanity and but it's fact, also Andrew, it's also defining ourselves with a false notion of yes. spirituality. Yes. Yes. Because even if it's celibate, you're still thinking good thoughts about sameness. And sameness is denying the God who is distinct. And also um, of this, uh, that it is an immutable characteristic or uh, that God, that Jesus can't change it. And that that's God right. Is bigger than all of that that's there right are all things that i might describe myself as but you know i'm a i'm a daughter of the living god who changes and transforms me that takes right. me away from those things that are not of the lord jesus christ that puts puts on his righteousness and his beauty through, the, through the jesus christ died on the cross for our sin to wash away us to wash away that's those right. things that are not of him that's right. But the problem is with those people is they try to justify gay thinking yeah. as not sinful. And I'm suggesting theologically, at least according to my lecture, gay thinking is a denial of who God is. Yes. And I think that what's happened, and I um, this is a question, I'm, I'll get to my question for you at the end of this, but I think that what's happened for the church across the Western world is we've allowed um, the opposition to define terms. So we have um, terms such as gay, gay, gay Christians um, uh, being trapped in the wrong body, gay conversion therapy, which is mm -hmm. a brutal term that is used against, um, against um, us and, and also then opens, opens up well, it's very difficult then to actually have a proper discourse around it because of the images that are out there in the public um, in the public space. But it's the terminology that is drowning us in terms, very often True. in terms of getting the gospel through. And I, I think I was going to say to, to you, ask you, Peter, what what should we do as Christians? What should we be doing in the public discourse? What should the church be doing um, in order to um, make plain? All right. Yeah, that's a good question. What you have just taught us. On I know. This, this, I think, is the great problem, that our fundamental affirmation of normative sexuality depends upon an enormous amount of theological clarity. There are very few right-wing people in this country here who will ever attack gay marriage and gay gay people because they believe it's your right to do it but they cannot do any theological thinking and and maybe it's a time for us as christians to attempt to do theological thinking in our analysis of what's going on in homosexual thinking and such and that gets us into the being of god and redemption and maybe it's a time when we need to decide that 
we have to do this and whether people agree with us or not we have to say clearly why we oppose this kind of sexuality and i i hope my little lecture would be of help to some people in understanding the theological implications of why we cannot affirm gay expression because it goes against the being of god mm -hmm. oh i've got another question for you peter which is um how does cultural Marxism fit in with paganism and Easternism and all of that kind of thing? Oh boy, <laughs> it's um, it's a catch-all term for the rejection of theism. Actually, it's a rejection of twoism. Cultural Marxism rejects the being of God and the place of distinction within the culture. And of course, cultural Marxism as a political system is a oneist system because there is no God over and above the political system to which we make an appeal for our rights. In Marxism, we invent our own rights. And so you have a political oneism in Marxism that is absolutely deadly and it will seek to destroy all uh, tourist expressions like the church and the family. So cultural Marxism, which I believe is on the way into our Western cultures, will be of tremendous uh, impact for us as Christians, and we'd better learn how to speak against it. And does it, but does it partner with Eastern spirituality, or does it reject it, Eastern well, spirituality? How do you see that? It doesn't matter. It's the same it's saying the same thing and it will be it will be fine with eastern spirituality unfortunately marx and engels didn't know much about eastern spirituality but my bet is they would have incorporated it somehow in their system right. i know you've quite you we've sought to make a bridge between the eastern spirituality um now cultural marxism and um islam right but now, but you're finding you're finding that the left wing is all open to Islam. By the way, yes. our, our leftists love Islam, but they don't love Christianity. And I think ultimately, when you poke in, it's between oneism and twoism. They also love Eastern spirituality, though, as well, don't they? I mean, that's yeah. the thing. That well, they would, yeah, that absolutely, yeah. Eastern spirituality yeah. is no problem for for neo-Marxism. And I think yeah. that that's what we see lived out um, in a in the in in our in our daily lives. A Christian concern in the Christian Legal Centre mm -hmm. that it's Christians that are being arrested on the streets um, for street preaching. It's the Christians, um, even right. as even as we're online right now, we have um, a breaking case where a church minister for getting involved in a Facebook discussion. Well, the um, an, uh, Cornwall Pride just threatened to burn down his church. That's the story of Joshua Williamson mm -hmm. and perhaps one of the team of Christian Concern can post up that press release onto our live stream now so that people can find out what it is that's going on. They were saying that they come as a, literally um, come and, well, they were threatening the church with physical violence um, this, this, this last Sunday. So these things we, we've seen going on, but the police, imagine uh, they were threatening to burn down the church 
Um, and the police treated that. Um, it was very, it was very quiet. And it's quite interesting how the press has not mentioned that. The local it's press. A it's a peaceful it. demonstration, right? <laughs> well, that's the, that's um, that's the sort of stuff that was that that is the sort of stuff we're seeing. You know, it's it's the it's it as we know very well. It's but Mike Davidson who helps people. Oh yes. Away from same-sex attraction, his his ministry um, is threatened with shutdown. You know, we at Christian Concern and Mike Davidson have had hundreds of harassing calls over the past month um, mm, yeah. around this issue. But that is something yeah. that is treated I, as normal. I, want to, uh, I, think, I think you're pointing out with your testimony that the great the ultimate distinction is between oneism and twoism. That is That's to say, theism and pantheism. Remember that. Um, so, and, and I want to close with this question here from Antonio DiMarco on YouTube. Um, what about Christians who can't get rid of feelings of same-sex attraction? Because I think, you know, Peter, it could seem like you were saying that you can't be a Christian if you have these feelings. I don't think that's what you're saying, is it? No, it's not. And I, I feel very deeply for people who fight, battle with such problems. And I sometimes I, I, I wonder how we can describe i guess uh, james parker did the best i've ever heard of describing why these feelings get implicated into uh thinking and we cannot get out of it and i would suggest that this young man try and get in touch with james because he's the guy that if anybody could give hope but i just give a sense of, it's called True Identity, isn't it? True Identity is his ministry. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would just give a sense of, oh, of feeling sad for that man and a sense of compassion for him. I want him to know that. But I do want him to keep looking because that testimony we had from James Parker is a wonderful statement that if you keep looking, you will find Fantastic. Well, listen, um, Peter, thank you so much for all that you've done. Uh, I can tell there's a lot of preparation that went into this talk today and a, a lot of content and it was really well structured and uh, very helpful and uh, worth watching again, certainly. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and thank you as well um, for Andrea and all the rest of you watching. Um, it's been a great time. Uh, we've really appreciated it. Um, do join us again. Do follow us on Facebook and YouTube, like our videos. Um, we will be live again. Uh, we're calling it Round the Table with Chris Concern on Friday lunchtime. I think we're going to be talking about education uh, on Friday. And so I'm looking forward to that, uh, talking with you then as well. Um, so we look forward to seeing you then. Do share uh, and rewatch and encourage your friends to watch this video again as well. Very helpful resource. Thank you so much. And can I also say just one extra thing, Peter, it's such a joy to know you. Thank you for such a faithful testimony to you and your wife, such a faithful ministry, Truth Exchange, incredible resource. So can I really encourage everyone that watches this to sign up, to go onto the website, to look at the resources that are there, which are, at, which are the knowledge mm. of, of 
um, a man that has really lived and worked this through over decades. And it's a resource that we must cherish and that we must use. And let's go out and buy this new book as well. Uh, and let's give this out and let's read it in order to understand the times and therefore to help us, to equip us and on how now we should act um, in, this, in this situation. Can I just say how honored and thrilled I am to be talking to you both. I've had so many wonderful experiences with Christian concern and I pray for you and I pray that you will never lose your, lose your courage to keep doing what you're doing. God bless you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. Great. Thank you, everyone.